I go to sleep every night feeling traumatized. They say occupation, trying to hide that it's a genocide. I just wish a kid could grow up to see his mama. I wish that I could do something about bombs dropped on Gaza. It hurts so bad to know. Where do my tax dollars go? Murdered in cold blood. Poor young soul, all he knew was love. The whole world goes blind, turned to silence. Well, I'm saying free Palestine from tyrants. I don't even know if I can handle this pain. Every day is murder, kids get put in the grave. Bombed for his race in a place he was raised. Peace was the only thing that he ever craved. So how do you justify what you're doing? Hurts so bad to see all the lives we're losing. Feels like the world goes blind. Free Palestine, free Palestine. So hello, Let's open my windows and doors because otherwise singing loudly like that the whole street hears me. One sec. <clears throat> All right, so that song is written by um, a Palestinian who lives in America. Um, his name is Samer. I just discovered it a few days ago. Unbe unbelievable, unbelievable song. So, so nice, but so sad. Um, so I had to try to learn some of it. I only played like one third of the song. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, check him out. Samer S. A M E R. Um, um, yeah, so welcome to another episode. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this episode, but it just feels right because the other day I thought of um, an essay. I've never read it, but um, you know, it's on my list. Um, I just thought of an essay that would be very relevant to read now. Um, because, um, this essay had a massive influence on Mahatma Gandhi in his non-violent, um, peaceful protesting, um, which in the end, um, achieved independence for India against the British empire. It also had a massive influence on Martin Luther King Jr. in America for um, his, um, once again, nonviolent, peaceful protest uh, for achieving civil rights for African-Americans uh, in America. Um, you know what? Um, I heard... Um, the boxer, what's he called? The guy who was fighting Conor McGregor, uh, Floyd Mayweather, 
Is that his name? I heard him in a some little short on um, YouTube recently, and he says he calls himself an American. Right, you are, absolutely, agree. And he says he doesn't call himself an African-American because he says when all of the Europeans came over to America and stole it from the um, Native American Indians who were living there, they called themselves Americans, the Europeans did. And only then when they brought over the African slaves, they referred to them then as African-American so why make the 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 differentiation between you don't you don't mention we're European American, you know? I just thought it's a good point. <clears throat> anyway, um, I mean, yeah, maybe people will want to hold on to the African American to hold on to like the history and the struggle. I guess, yeah. Um, but in the end, isn't it going to be better when? Not that it's forgotten, but that we've just all worked through that and we're at a place where, yeah, we can just say, obviously, I'm an American or whatever. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that there's not this differentiation. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole I didn't plan on um, talking about that, but it's a bit relevant for this essay as well. Um what is it that they say? I mean, things are going to be, you know, fair and equal and humane once color blindness is achieved by everyone. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 yeah, I think I'm, you know, I'm there already, I would say. I don't treat anyone any differently because of fucking color of their skin you know it's that's just ridiculous like ridiculous racism yeah that's what it is oh my god anyway okay right so <clears throat> right didn't mean to <laughs> hadn't planned on saying any of that but anyway um so yeah so this essay i thought of it because um yeah it's it's called Civil Disobedience, as you can probably see in the title of this episode. And um, it was written in 1849. And as I said, it had a massive influence on Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So this essay is pretty, um, yeah, has been very, very influential. And I read half of it again last uh, i read half of it last night for the first time just to kind of um maybe so the reading today will be a bit more fluid a bit more um prepared maybe um and yeah i'll probably only get to read half of it in this episode because um with all the commentary and everything that will it'll take about an hour and a half i think um so so yeah, I'll just give a little introduction in uh, um, in relation to the guy who wrote it. So his name was Henry David Thoreau, and he was born in 1817. Um, and he actually only lived to the age of 45, so he died in 1862, I think it was, yeah. Um, but 
it's a coincidence that he was actually a friend of the guy who I did the last episode on. And his name was uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, I've actually done like four episodes on him now. I'm really like, I really like his essays. But um, and just like I did, this guy, Thoreau, um, he was really influenced by Emerson. Uh, he, as I said, he was a friend of Emerson. He became a friend of Emerson. And he really took to heart Emerson's essays. Um, for example, one called Nature, which actually I haven't read yet, but I have it in that book. And I might read it now because I know that Thoreau was so influenced by it. But he was also really influenced by Emerson's essay called um, Self-Reliance, as I was when I read it. So Thoreau really took these these philosophical essays to heart and he really embodied them. He really lived the philosophy. He practiced what he preached. You know, he walked the walk. He didn't just talk the talk, you know. Um, Um, so, um, so, okay. So this guy Thoreau, he went to Harvard. He had a good education. Um, after he educated, after he graduated, he took up a job as a teacher. He's from a place called Concord in Massachusetts, the same place Emerson was, was from. Um, and he took up this job as a teacher, but he only lasted a few days in the job because he wouldn't hit the kids. Like if the kids were, you know, disobeying or being bold in class or not listening or something, he wouldn't hit them. And the heads of the school found out that he, he wasn't hitting them or he wasn't administering uh, corporal punishment is what they called it. Um, and so he, he just walked out of the school because he was told he had to do that. And he was like, I just fundamentally object to this. It's, he was a conscientious objector from the from the beginning of his career, let's say. So he, he left the school and then he set up um, another school, an independent school uh, with his brother. Um, and this school that he set up, it was said to be one of the earliest kind of alternative ways of schooling in America. Um it inspired other uh, alternative uh, ways of schooling later on. Like they would do the the exams, you know, uh, so that the students would get the, the proper, uh, you know, whatever it is, certificate or whatever. But during the year, they would like go out into nature and they would like examine nature and they would uh, like maybe go camping and stuff. You know, they spent a lot of time in just kind of being free in nature, not in a school classroom, you know, in, in a small room or whatever, you know? So, and the students who had this education with, um, Thoreau and his brother later in life, they, you know, came back and they thanked, um, them because they had such great memories of that whole experience. So it's, it's, you know, it seemed to be, the students got on well, they got their education and they had this brilliant experience as well because Thoreau was like a nature loving kind of artist, you know what I mean? So likewise, his brother was as well. But um, unfortunately, his his brother got sick. I think it was after only like a year or something, his brother got sick and they had to stop the school. Um, 
And just as an example of, I, I see this as an example of, uh, of, of Thoreau's kind of sensitivity. His brother got sick. I think it was with tuber- tuberculosis. And then one day he was um, shaving and he cut his thumb. This is Thoreau's brother. He cut his thumb by accident. And because of the material used in the blade, he got like a disease and it led to lockjaw. And he actually died quite a bad death. And <clears throat> and Thoreau himself, after his brother died, he developed what is called sympathetic symptoms, meaning he actually developed lockjaw himself, even though he didn't have the, the disease, but he developed it purely out of like sympathy and empathy for his brother. He He got over it. But when I just heard that in a biography, I watched about Thoreau, it just stands out as like, my God, that seems like a, you know, a very, um, yeah, a very uh, empathic um, thing to have happened to him. One sec, let's get a drink. Um, and this same sensitivity, um, it's going to be reflected in his... Um, in his own writings, as I'll get onto in a minute. So anyway, his brother passed away. They stopped the school. And then um, he worked for his father's pencil making company for a while. And then he was also a surveyor, um, which is like inspecting different things. I didn't read exactly what he inspected, but he was some kind of inspector, you know, an official inspector for different things for like maybe safety reasons or whatever. But, um, Anyway, he was friends with this guy, Emerson, and then he had this idea in 1845, he begun it. He, in March of 1845, he went, I think it was on the land of Emerson, um, and he asked Emerson, could he build a cabin on his land and live there for a while, like in a self-sufficient way? purely as an experiment. Like this cabin was only like a mile and a half away from like the closest uh, village or something like this. So it wasn't like off in the wilderness. He wasn't like abandoning civilization or, or anything, but it was totally an experiment. And actually there's a good good quote um, here I have handy about his reasons for doing this. And he says, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could learn what it had to teach and not, when I come to die, discover that I had not lived. Then he says, I left the woods for as good um, a reason as I went there. Um... And that is his reasons for leaving it were because he was happy with what he had discovered and learned during that experiment. And the experiment lasted two years, two months and two days. Um, So just his reasons for for doing that um, experiment, living self-sufficiently, he was growing his own food. And, you know, he was like, I mean, he's a writer, he's an artist, so he was very inspired by nature, because 
As I said about Emerson in the other episodes, Emerson was a part of a philosophical art movement in um, America called Transcendentalism. And that was kind of like <laughs> returning to an appreciation of nature as opposed to just human reason. Um, I did coincidentally learn that Emerson was of a church in America called uh, Unitarianism. And that's that's a form of Christianity that rejects uh, the Trinity in Christianity. And just coincidentally, I mentioned another um, type of Christianity back in the times of the Roman Empire um, called Arianism. And that was a type of Christianity that also rejected the Trin Trinitarian <laughs> um, version of, of uh, Christianity. Um, I, I hadn't pre prepared, I hadn't, I didn't think I was going to say this, but it's just come to my mind now, so I'm going to say it. But um, just coincidentally, as I say this, I did come across a theory that said that the reason the Catholic Church in Europe picked the um, Trinitarian, like three gods in one, was because... The, God, the, the Germanic peoples that the Romans were trying to convert believed in many gods. So this three gods in one version of Christianity apparently was a bit more appealing to the Germanic peoples than a single um, god. Um, I think that's called synch syncretism, syncretizing. It's like when you're kind of, um, you're kind of... Uh, it's kind of like syncing two different cultures together. Like the Christians had their beliefs and they kind of took aspects of the, um, of the Germanic religion to uh, kind of incorporated maybe similarities or emphasize similarities from the Christian religion to the, to the, um, to the Germanic beliefs in order to in influence them and entice them to, um, to, to take on board this Christianity because I was actually listening before to um, a real Bible specialist and he, and he said that nowhere in the Bible does it mention um, this, this Trinity. Um, anyway, that's a whole other, um, that's a whole other debate. I won't get too sidetracked into it, but I just wanted to mention I heard this theory, I guess, um, yeah, maybe. It's just something to consider, maybe. Um, anyway, so Emerson was from a form of Christianity called Unitarianism, which is like unit, it's like one as opposed to a trin Trinitarian. Anyway, so Transcendentalism came out of this. So I'm saying at this time, like a real desire to experience nature was in the kind of avant-garde of philosophical debates and artistic ideas. So um, this guy, Thoreau, really took to heart Emerson's theories and he wanted to go and live deliberately in um, by himself, self-sufficiently, self away from institutions, because this is another thing that um, the transcendentalists were criticizing, man's dependent dependence on institutions. And... Um, 
like Emerson said in his essay, man is at his best when he's not dependent on institutions. So I'm just saying this because Emerson or Thoreau really took these theories to heart and he put them into practice. He went off and he lived in this area. Um, he wasn't like a hermit, though. He 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 was he, he had visitors, family and friends, and he even kind of housed runaway uh slaves in America. He was an, an ab abolitionist. So he was a pretty good guy. You know, he wasn't into corporal punishment, hitting kids. And he was an abolitionist. Um, so he was a bit of, you know, ahead of his time. Um, but he also um, would walk into the local village and meet people every now and then. So it was an interesting experiment. Um, he wrote about this all of his experience during those two years. And then he later refined it into a book that's called Walden, W-A-L-D-E-N. I have it, but um, I haven't yet read it. It's about 200 pages. Um, I might do an episode on it one day because it is very interesting. Anyway, he wrote that book. Um, it's one of his most famous, but the essay that I'm reading now also came about because of an experience that he had whilst he was staying in this, um, in this hut, uh, which he made himself in this uh, area called Walden. So one day he was going into the local village to um, get his shoes um, repaired and he bumped into a tax collector who said to him, hey, um, around this time there was the Mexican-American war going on. So because of the pressure of that war, this guy had to go back through his books to make sure everyone had paid their poll tax so that the government would have, you know, its financial support from everyone. And he noticed that Thoreau hadn't paid his poll tax for years. And a poll tax is, um, you, it's not in relation to how much you earn. It's just a standard tax that everyone has to pay in order to have the right to vote. And... Um, Thoreau hadn't paid his for years because one, he did not agree in a government that approved of slavery and he didn't want to finance that government. And number two, he also didn't want to finance what was happening um, with the American government um, and its expansionist uh, project into what was territory that was owned by the Spanish Empire um, although, um, it, it was, uh, under Mexican control, they had, they had recently achieved their, um, independence, but anyway, so yeah, he didn't support, he didn't, he didn't want to pay his taxes because he would be financially supporting these things that he fundamentally disagrees with. So he was being disobedient in a civil way. And that's, um, anyway, I'll just <laughs> finish the story. So he told the tax collector, you know, I'm not paying them because I don't believe I don't believe it's right what the government is doing. So I'm not going to financially support them. So he was put in jail. Um, and in the end, he only ended up staying there one night because it's believed that some woman from his family came the next day and bailed him out. And he was kind of like he kind of felt bad leaving because he kind of. He kind of saw the value of um, of uh, of being put in jail for simply acting on his 
acting in accordance with his conscience. But anyway, he did leave the jail. And it was that experience of being put in jail that later he wrote this essay because of that experience. Um, what else can I say? Um, I think I've kind of said... I think that's basically it. Yeah, this. Um, don't know why I'm after losing my train of thought there now. <laughs> I'm doing this episode completely just um, without any notes. Um, so let me just recap. Okay, so right there was the song at the start. Oh yeah, the song at the start. Yeah, so the song at the start was. I mean, like in my last episode, I I, I played a song that was kind of, you know, just in in harmony with the mood of this time for anyone who's aware of what's going on because not everyone is aware really of what's going on um and so i chose that to play that song um it's, it's kind of a thing that i've been doing the last while playing different kind of songs at the start of episodes just for fun um so yeah it's a really nice song so i chose to sing it and play it but also there's a line of that song that i just sang and it says um it's so sad to know where do my tax dollars go. So um, that's just it. It's like the guy, you know, Samer, he's, he's saying he's paying his taxes, but he knows that him paying these taxes is, is supporting the American government to send money to Israel to fund Israel's genocide of of Gaza. Um, so yeah, so this whole essay that I'm going to read, well, it's going to read, read half of it. Um, it's, it's going to be a real fleshing out of, um, of, um, yeah, of, of disobeying the government when they're doing things that you fundamentally think are wrong. So um, I think that's basically the introduction now. Let me just check how long did I go do there. Yeah, about 26 minutes. So, um, yeah, so I don't think I've forgotten anything. This is the thing, once again, with not um, using any editing software. It's just I press record, <laughs> I talk for however long, and then I have to try and remember everything and then get it all in. Um, and anyway, yeah, so, okay, I'm just going to start reading the essay because... Yesterday, I read it through, half of it through, just to, um, to, to have this reading a bit more fluid, a bit more flowing. Um, I thought it might help. Um, so let's just go for it. So, Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. I <clears throat> nice start. I heartily accept the motto that government is best which governs least. And I should like to see it acted up to more rapidly and systematically. So he wants to see a government that is like not so imposing on its people. And if this were carried out, it finally amounts to this, which also I believe that government is best which governs not at all. And when men are prepared for it, that will be the kind of government government which they will have. And when I read this, I thought, 
that government is best which governs not at all. I was thinking of, um, there's a poem by an, by an Irish poet called Seamus Heaney, and the poem is, is called um, From the Republic of Conscience. And just that idea, a, a republic of conscience. I was reminded of that when I read this yesterday, because that's just it. Like he says, a government will not have imposing rules and yeah, imposing laws on people if the people governed themselves in a way, if, if everyone was morally um, developed to such a point that they could tell themselves what's right and what's wrong. They don't need a government to tell them what's right and what's wrong. They don't need all these rules. Um, I think that's just what I was reminded of. And all, like, it's a great opening. Like, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I was thinking like, how does society get there? Like I was thinking, okay, in education, um, sure you do all the basics, but if you want a society where there's basically not that there's no government, but that there's not an imposing government, um, if you want that, you need a society full of people who are totally morally developed. So I was thinking like the education system <laughs> should be like also really like intense um, moral education, like constantly like putting the kids in like hypothetical situations about what they would do in this moral dilemma or something. You know what I mean? Like imagine that every day, like a few hours, like... I don't really think I had any kind of um, any kind of uh, experience with that kind of stuff in, in in my experience in schools, you know. Um, so yeah, that was just something I thought of yesterday. Just get a drink here, and then he goes on to say because government is at best but an imp expedient government is at best only an expedient and an expedient is something that is um practical but convenient but also improper or often immoral so he's saying here the government is a practical set of rules that are that are convenient to a certain mindset, but the convenience of the rules that these people in government have created overlook major moral um, implications. That's just a great sentence. Government is at best but an expedient, but most governments are usually, and all governments are sometimes, excuse me, um, inexpedient. The objections which have been brought against a standing army, and they are many and weighty and deserve to prevail, may also at last be brought against a standing government. The standing army is only an arm of the standing government. The government itself, which is only the mode that the people have chosen to execute their will, is equally liable to be abused and perverted before the people can act through it. 
yeah, he's just saying like this this thing called the government with all its rules is set up by a bunch of people who may not have thought of everything, yet they have enshrined laws to suit whatever it was that they um, put into law at that time, even if it was over, even if it was not considering major mor- moral implications of um, of what they were talking about, like slavery, for example. Um, witness the present Mexican war. The, the work of comparatively a few individuals using the standing government as their tool. The work, uh, sorry, witness the present Mexican war. The work of comparatively a few individuals using, <laughs> I'm just thinking of something else. I, uh, I don't want to, I won't go back into it. Sorry. Witness the present Mexican war. The work of comparatively a few individuals using the standing government as their tool. For in the outset, the people would not have consented to to the measure. This American government, what is it but a tradition, though a recent one, endeavoring to transmit itself unimpaired to posterity, but each instant losing some of its integrity. It has not... (laughs) <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's just constantly getting w- slightly worse and slightly worse, slightly worse. It has not the vitality and force of a single living man, for a single man can bend it to his will. It is a sh- sort of wooden gun to the people themselves, but it is not the less necessary for this, for the people must have some complicated machinery or other and hear its its noise to satisfy that idea of government which they have. Governments show thus how successfully men can be imposed upon, even impose on themselves for their own advantage. It is Excellent, we must allow. Yet this government never of itself furthered any enterprise. But the alacrity with which it got out of its way, it does not keep the country free. It does not settle the West. It does not educate. The character inherent in the American people has done all that has been accomplished. And it would have done somewhat more if the government had not sometimes got in its way. Yeah, this thing that we work with, this government, it's like... It's... It impedes a lot of good things sometimes because it's a slow machinery that is behind, lagging behind maybe the best in humanity sometimes, I think is what he's, is a summary of what he's saying there. For government is an expedient by which men would fain succeed in letting one another alone. And as has been said, when it is most expedient, the governed are most let alone by it. Trade and commerce, if they were not made of India rubber, would never manage to bounce over the obstacle which legislators are continually putting in their way. And if one were to judge these men wholly by the effects of their actions and not partly by their intentions, they would deserve to be classed and punished with those mischievous persons who put obstructions on the railroads. Um, I'll just... I'm probably just going to comment on... The bits that are, um, 
yeah, the bits that just stick out to me most. So some bits I'm going to maybe just speed through. <laughs> if my if my voice goes a bit more uh, quickly, that's because I think I've read that part yesterday and I thought, okay, I'm probably not going to comment on that. So I'll just get through it quickly. So yeah. Uh, but to speak practically and as a citizen, unlike those who call themselves non-government men, I ask... I asked for not at once no government, but at once a better government. Let every man make make it be known what kind of government he would command. Sorry, I was putting in my own words there. Let every man make known what kind of government would command his respect. And that will be one step toward obtaining it. So, yeah, he's saying you got to engage with this, this big machine called the government and you gotta participate in the improvement of it all after all the practical reason um after all the practical reason (laughs) after all the practical reason why when uh, i'm just i'm just thinking of um because yesterday when i was uh um Oh, never mind. <laughs> this is because yesterday I actually made a recording of the first reading, but um, yeah, oh, it doesn't matter. You can't we can't really do the same thing twice. So I'll just I'll just let it go. I'll just because uh, like there's things I said yesterday. I remember now in the introduction um, that I quite liked, <laughs> and that this time around I forgot to say um, because I was just think I was reminded of it when I said. Um, um, when I was saying that thing there about like he's he's very much so engaged in society and engaged thinking about government and how to improve it, I was reminded of when I was saying like when he did his experiment in Walden in the woods, he wasn't like abandoning civilization at all. He just wanted it was a project just to see, you know, because he saw society has been very like hectic and very materialistic, and he just wanted to experience. How simply can you live and be happy at the same time? Um, and I was just reminded that in yesterday's recording, um, people, when they heard what he was doing in the woods by himself, they kind of thought he was like just up to no good or just wasting himself because he was this Harvard educated guy. And what the hell is he doing? Just living out there like a hermit almost. But um, he he said to them, I mean, he was an artist basically. So he was uh, doing this for the experience and for the appreciation of nature and then also to write about it as well uh, and to bring it back into people to share it with them. And he had this funny uh, comment, like when people asked him, what is he doing? Um, He had been a surveyor before, which is like surveying different, surveying and inspecting different properties and stuff like this, uh, maybe before they're sold or whatever. Um, And he said that his job out in Walden was he was an inspector of snowstorms. It was just quite a funny, um, funny term, like, you know, because as I'm saying, these transcendentalists were very much so inspired by nature. They wanted to go out and experience it firsthand. Um, and yeah, I just thought that was um, a funny sentence. And I mentioned it yesterday, but I didn't mention it today. So uh, that's all. I'll go back to the essay now. Um, <laughs> an inspector of snowstorms. Anyway, um, after all, the practical reason why when 
the power is once in the hands of the people, a majority are permitted and for a long period continued to, to rule is not because they are most likely to be in the right, nor because this seems fairest to the minority, but because they are physically the strongest. He's just talking about mob rule. Um, but a government in which the majority rule in all cases cannot be based on justice, even as far as men understand it, can there not be a government in which majorities do not virtually decide right and wrong, but conscience instead should be the... Yeah, he's just saying that mob rule is... Might does not make right. He says it's conscience that should be the real ruler of um, a society, of a government. And once again, that poem, um, The Republic of Conscience, it's exactly... This is what I got from it yesterday as well. This whole essay is all about the republic of conscience. Um, in which majorities decide only those questions to which the rule of expediency is is applicable. Must the citizens ever for a moment or in the least degree resign his conscience to the legislator? Absolutely not, you know. Um, why has every man a conscience then if he is to just give it up and not act on it? You know, what is a conscience? It's a compass, isn't it? It's a kind of a guide. And then these policies and laws make us almost have to to uh, deny the conscience and ignore the conscience, our consciences. I think that we should be men first and women and and subjects to the law afterward. It is not desirable to cultivate a respect for the law so much as for respect for what is right. Absolutely. The only obligation which I have a right to assume is to do at any time what I think is right. Absolutely. It is truly enough said that a corporation has no conscience. Yeah, a big corporation has no conscience. But a corporation of conscious men is a corporation with a conscience. There it is again. If whatever corporation you're, look, you're looking at, if all those people, all those adults, they had went through a school system that really, really developed them in a moral way, <laughs> they would grow up to be these real moral people. And then the corporation that they would uh, manage would be a corporation that has real moral values. Um. Law never made men a, a whit more just. It's like an old expression. We, we would say a bit more just. And by means of their respect for it, respect for the law, even the well-disposed, are even the good-intentioned, are daily made the agents of injustice. Yep. Just like, for example, everyone who was paying their taxes and supporting slavery and supporting the war in... Um, in between America and Mexico. Oh, yeah, and I did forget to say about that. Um, that war, it it actually, like, um, during that war, America gained what we see now as America, all those states. Seven of the states from the border of Mexico um, were once in the Mexican territory. 
They weren't owned by America. But during the Mexican-American War, America gained a lot of new territory in that war. So all of the states that are on the south, um, seven of those states were gained as a result of that war. There's, um, there's New Mexico, Texas, Nevada, California, Utah, Arizona, and Wyoming. So there was a massive amount of territory gained because of that war. Um, where was I? A common and natural result of an undue respect for law is that you may see a file of soldiers if you just go along with these laws that were made just by, you know, the people at the top, were, were their intentions so good or were their intentions just to make law that suited them? And this is what the status quo is. People at the top who have a vested interest in the way things are right now, because the way things are right now is good for those people at the top, but not necessarily for everyone else. That's having that's what's called having a vested interest in the status quo. So, uh, yeah, where is the sentence I was on? A common, yeah, a, a common and natural result of an of a respect for the status quo, let's say, for and for its law, is what you may see a file of soldiers, colonels, captains, corporals, privates, powder monkeys, which is like an old word for boys who would supply um, the cannon, uh, supply the army with that uh, gunpowder during a battle and, and all marching in admirable order over hill and dale to the wars against their wills, against their wills. They just were complying with the government. I mean, yeah, like, for example, the American Mexican war, who's, who initiated that war, the government or the people? Probably the government, because it was going to benefit, um, it was going to benefit those people who were already rich. Anyway, um, and so, yeah, if you comply with the wishes of the government who are not really representing your wishes, people often, you, people often end up having to go to wars that they have no interest in. But the, but the government has an interest in the war because it's going to stand to be profitable for them. But yet the government are not going to be the ones fighting. You know, it's Jesus Christ. This is, this is, this is what happens if you obey. And this essay is called Civil Disobedience. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> they have no doubt that it is a damnable business in which they are concerned. These people go into wars that they don't even know anything about or have no reason to be there. They're just going along with it. They are all peaceably inclined. Really, they just want peace, but they're just not thinking through these things for themselves. Maybe in those days, they didn't have the means to access the, the maybe the what was really going on. Um, now, what are they? Are they men at all? Or are they just basically small movable forts and magazines? Which I think magazine is like a kind of a, well, it's like for a machine gun, I'm thinking of like the, the cart, the packets of all the bullets at the service of some unscrupulous man in power. Yes, they are just exactly that. 
visit the navy yard and behold a marine such a man as an american government can make or such as it can make a man with its black arts a mere sh- a mere shadow and reminiscence of humanity a man laid out alive and standing and already as one may say buried under arms with funeral accompaniments though it may be then there's a poem here not a drum was heard not a funeral note as his corpse to the rampart was hurried not a soldier discharged his farewell shot o'er the grave when our hero was buried it's just a poem that kind of laments the the death of soldiers and they don't even have time to be lamented and yet they just got into that situation because they just followed orders following orders and this is the excuse that in the nuremberg trials after world war 2 the the nazi leaders that were caught that was just their excuse they said oh we were just following orders you know that is just not a fucking excuse it's ne- it's not an excuse you see those nazi people they should have been conscientious objectors but they weren't and and so therefore there was a holocaust um and and war um the the mass of men serve the state thus not as men mainly but as i'm going to say sheepish he says machines but as machines with their bodies they are the standing army and the militia jailers constables posse comitatus that's like a sheriff's posse people who are given powers to enact the law etc in most cases there is no free exercise whatever of the judgment or of the moral sense but they put themselves on a level with wood and earth and stones just as like tools and wooden men can perhaps be manufactured that will serve the purpose as well such command such command no more respect than men of straw or of of a lump of dirt he's just saying these people don't think for themselves they just yeah they just you know they have the same sort of worth only as horses and dogs yet such as these even are commonly esteemed good citizens but they'll be praised by for following orders as being good citizens what 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 use really is there in praise from people who have corrupt um let's say agendas it's not really it's not any praise um others as most legislators um others as most legislators politicians lawyers ministers and office hold <coughs> excuse me office holders serve the state chiefly with their heads he's talking about other people then who are like you know behind a desk somewhere they are equally as guilty for not questioning things it's not just the soldiers one sec um and he says they they rarely make any moral distinctions also they are as likely to serve the fucking devil without intending it 
as God. You know, they themselves are just going through the motions. Um, the machine machinery of government with its immoral aspects. They say, oh, well, oh, this is the system. I have to do it like this. Sorry, you know. But that system of government will only be changed when you have people acting in accordance with their conscience. Um, who will disobey? A very few as heroes, patriots, martyrs, reformers in the great sense and men serve the state with their consciences also and so necessarily resist it for the most part and they are commonly treated as enemies by it oh yeah a wise man will only be useful as a man and will not submit to be just like a, a piece of clay like he was saying earlier like these other people are just used as like objects and stop a hole or to keep the wind away as a piece of clay would do in an old school wall. Um, but leave that office to his dust at least. Um, and then there's a quote here. I am too high born to be propertied, to be a secondary at control or, use, or useful serving man and instrument to any sovereign state throughout the world. And that's a quote from a Shakespeare play called King John. He who gives himself entirely to his fellow men appears to them useless and selfish, but he who gives himself partially to them is pronounced a benefactor and philanthropist. How does it become a man to behave towards this American government today? And you can ask this same question right now. How does it become a man to behave towards this American government today? I answer that he cannot, without disgrace, be associated with it. I cannot for an instant recognize that political organization as my government, sorry, I cannot for an instant recognize that political organization as my government. which is the slave's government also. Um, one sec, I think I have to close this door. One sec. Sorry. It would be, it would be cool to have like a studio, a proper place where I don't have to um <laughs> to have to manage interruptions and stuff anyway um anyway um where was i all men recognize the right of revolution that is the right to refuse allegiance to and to resist the government when its tyranny or its inefficiency are great and unendurable I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'll, I'll wait <laughs> before I go on another um, commentary. But almost all say that such, but almost all say that such is not the case now. But such was the case, they think, in the revolution of 1775. If one were to tell me that this was a bad government because it taxed certain foreign commodities brought to its port, 
it is it is most probable that I should not make and make much fuss about it, for I can do without for I can do without them. I'm just kind of speeding through this part. All machines have their friction, and possibly this does not this does enough good to counterbalance the evil. At any rate, it is a great evil to make a stir about it. But when the friction comes to have its machine and oppression and robbery are organized, I say, let us not have such machinery at all. In other words, when a sixth of the population of a nation which has undertaken to be the refuge, the so-called refuge of liberty, when a sixth of that nation are in fact slaves which is absolutely ridiculous, the land of the free, you say, and a sixth of the population was slaves, and a whole country is unjustly overrun and conquered by a foreign army and subject subjected to military law, I think that it is not too soon then in that case for an honest man to rebel and revolutionize. What makes this duty the more urgent is the fact that the country that was overrun is not our own, but but it was our invading army who overran the Mexicans. He's just stating his objection to that war. Pali, some guy, a common authority with many on moral questions, in his chapter on the duty of submission to civil government, I mean, that title is the absolute opposite to what this essay is about. Um, in his chapter on the duty of submission to civil government, resolves all civil obligation into expediency. And he proceeds to say that so long as the interest of the whole society requires it, that is, so long as the established government cannot be resisted or changed without public inconveniency, it is the will of God that the established government be obeyed and no longer this principle being admitted the justice of every particular this principle being admitted the justice of every particular case of resistance is reduced to a computation of the quantity of the danger and grievance on the one side and of the probability and expense of redressing it on the other of this he says every man shall be uh, judged for himself but pali appears never to have contemplated those cases to which the rule of expediency does not apply in which a people as well as an individual must do justice cost what it may if i have unjustly wrested a taken a plank from a drowning man i must restore it to him though i drown myself this according to pali p a l e y not pali would be inconvenient but he that would save his life in such a in such a case shall lose it. I'm kind of speeding through this part because I didn't comment on this much yesterday. This people must cease to hold slaves and to make war on Mexico, though it costs them their existence as a people. I'm gonna open this door. Again. Um, in their practice, nations agree with Pauli. Pali. Um, but does anyone think that Massachusetts does exactly what is right at the present crisis? And then there's like a kind of a, a quote from a play here in an old school English style. A drab of state, a cloth or silver slut, to have her train borne up and her soul trail in the dirt.
that's that's like a, it's a metaphor for someone selling themselves you know a kind of a prostitute there um i think he's saying that what people are agreeing to in his day was equivalent to yeah them selling themselves um particularly or practically speaking the opponents to a reform in massachusetts are not a hundred thousand politicians at the south but a hundred thousand merchants and farmers here who are more interested in commerce and agriculture than they are in humanity and are not prepared to do justice to the slave and to mexico cost what it may i quarrel not with far-off foes but with those who near at home cooperate with and do the bidding of those far away and without whom the latter would be harmless accomplices um we are accustomed to say that the mass of men are unprepared but improvement is slow because the few are not materially wiser or better than the many it is not so important that many should be as good as you as that there be some absolute goodness somewhere for that will leaven leaven the whole lump leaven there maybe i'm pronouncing that word wrong but that's kind of like um like a bit of yeast will make um a lump of bread rise up that's the metaphor going on there mm. there are thousands who are in opinion opposed to slavery and to the war um who yet in effect do nothing to put an end to them who esteeming themselves children of washington and franklin sit down with their hands in their pockets and say that they know not what to do and do nothing who even postpone the question of freedom to the question of free trade and quietly read the pr prices current along with the latest advice advices from mexico after dinner and it may be even fall asleep over both of them what is the price of an honest man and patriot today they hesitate and they regret and sometimes they petition but they do nothing in earnest and with effect they will wait well disposed for others to remedy the evil that they may no longer have it to regret at most they give only a cheap vote and a feeble countenance and a godspeed to the right as it goes by them they are 999 patrons of virtue to one virtuous man meaning they'll in theory support virtue but only one out of a thousand is actually acting on it but it is easier to deal with the real possessor of a thing than with the temporary guardian of it all voting is a sort of gaming like checkers or backgammon with a slight moral tinge to it a playing with right and wrong with moral questions a betting naturally accompanies it the characters the character of the voters is not stacked i cast my vote perchance as i think right but i am not vitally concerned that the right should prevail here he's getting at like voting is just not really acceptable if you really really feel that something is totally morally wrong just voting on it isn't enough i am willing to leave it to the majority its obligation therefore never exceeds that of expediency even voting for the right 
is doing nothing. It is only expressing to men feebly your desire that it should prevail. A wise man will not leave the right to the a wise man will not leave the right to the mercy of chance, nor wish it to prevail through the power of the majority. There is but little he's kind of calling on people to actually act as opposed to just wait for voting to make a change. There is but little virtue in the action of masses of men. When the majority shall at length vote for the abolition of slavery, it will be because they are indifferent to slavery or because there is but little slavery left to be abolished by their vote. Yeah, they'll be the last to kind of, oh, right, yeah, look, it's actually kind of happening, so screw it, I might as well vote against it, doesn't matter. They weren't the ones who were leading the charge to change it in the first place. They will... Th they will then be the only slaves. Only his vote, only his vote can hasten the abolition of slavery who asserts his own freedom by his vote. I hear of a convention to be held at Baltimore or elsewhere for the selection of a candidate for the presidency made up of chiefly made up chiefly of editors and men who are politicians by profession. But I think what is it to any independent, intelligent and respectable man what decision they may come to? at the end of this voting for some president. Shall we not have the advantage of his wisdom and honesty, nevertheless? Yeah, here he's just kind of saying again, like, um, he's just fundamentally going against the idea of government. Like, why do we put one person in this position to rule over all of us when, sure, okay, if he's a good guy, okay, let him be a good guy. But why do we all have to submit to him? Because this is the way the machine works. You know, we all have to submit to, what was the other guy's essay's title? We all have to submit to um, society, essentially. Um, can we not count upon some independent votes? Are there not many individuals in the country who do not attend conventions? But no, I find that the respectable man, the so-called, so has immediately drifted from his position and despairs of his country when his country has more reason to despair of him. He forthwith adopts one of the candidates thus selected as the only available one, thus proving that he is himself available for any purpose of the demagogue. His vote is of no more worth than that of any unprincipled foreigner or hireling native who may have been bought. Just kind of quickly reading through this part. Oh, for a man who is a man, and as my neighbor says, has a bone in his back which you cannot pass your hand through. Our statistics are at fault. The population has been returned too large. How many men are there to a square thousand miles in this country? Hardly one. Does not America offer any inducement for... He's, he's only considering to be a real man or woman, a person who actually has a backbone and lives by their conscience. Does not America offer any inducement for men to settle here? The American has dwindled into an odd fellow. That's some kind of fraternity group. And I don't know much about that. One who may be known to be the development of his... One who may be known by the development of his organ of gregariousness. Organ, that's just kind of like by, yeah he's he's gregarious that means like a social beast a social animal um and a manifest lack of intellect and cheerful self-reliance 
whose first and chief concern on coming into the world is to see that the almhouses, that's like, you know, food for the poor and stuff like that, are in good repair. And before, and before yet, he has lawfully donned the virile garb to collect a fund for the support of the widows and orphans that may be, but that may be, who in short ventures to live only by the aid of the mutual insurance company, which has promised to bury him decently. I was just saying yesterday, <clears throat> yesterday that um, these people, he's saying like they have no self-reliance. They have no kind of intellect of their own. They're just kind of like, I was putting it as like, they are like janitors of the status quo. They will make sure that the alms houses are in good order. But they won't do anything to change the situation in society that is causing the people to need the alms houses in the first place. You know, you know what I mean? I was saying they're janitors of the status quo. <laughs> um, it is not a man's duty as a matter of course to devote himself to the eradication of any or even the most enormous wrong. He may still properly have other concerns to engage him, but it is his duty, at least, to wash his hands of it. And if he gives it no thought longer, not to give it practically his support. If I devote myself to other pursuits and contemplations, I must first see, at least, that I do not pursue them sitting upon another man's shoulders or like impeding someone else. I must get off him first that he may pursue his contemplations too or his desires. See what gross inconsistency is tolerated. I have heard some of my townsmen say, I should I should like to have them order me out to help put down an insurrection of the slaves or to march to Mexico. See if I would go, meaning they wouldn't. And yet these very men have each directly by their allegiance and so indirectly at least by their money furnished a substitute for themselves in the form of paying their taxes to the government which supports the government's slavery and war against the Mexicans. So this whole essay is like, I forgot to say it as well, but... um. When Thoreau was in prison for that night, um, his friend Emerson came by and was like, what are you doing in jail? And Thoreau is said to have responded, what are you doing not in jail? Because what he meant by that was, how can you support through your taxes this government that is... Um, supporting slavery and killing the, uh, uh, and stealing the territory from the Mexicans. So he, but in his statement, why are you not in prison? He was implying that only like an honest person, um, an honest person kind of in that current wrong situation belongs in prison because to be in that system, supporting it, makes you criminal you are accomplice in the terrible things that are going on and yeah yesterday when i was reading this i mean um 
imagine like in America now you have so many people protesting um, and, and so many Jewish Americans as well protesting, saying not in our name, you know. Um, imagine if they all did what Thoreau did and didn't pay their taxes. Because like that song at the start, there's that line, it's so sad to know where do my tax dollars go, you know. And as I said, you pay your tax dollars, though you are supporting the American government to send money to support the genocide of Gaza. Uh, imagine what would happen if um, people didn't pay their taxes because they were in disagreement with what their government was doing. I mean, in in uh, in Thoreau's day here, he was put in prison. Um, I mean, I looked it up and apparently you get interest on the tax that you don't pay. Um, so... But imagine if enough people did it that the government was going to have serious shortages. Um, I mean, the American government, the, Ameri the American economy is is funded by the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve, it's a privately owned company that is funding the American government. I mean, that is just... Uh, I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, it, it essentially means that the American, that America is majorly, majorly in the hands of a, of a certain group of people. And they're not the government. They're not elected officials, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, if people didn't pay their taxes... Then the, the thing is, like the Federal Reserve has to has to print even more money, and that adds to um, inflation in the value of a dollar. So things get worse. But um, I think somewhere in this essay, I think I might have said it already, or maybe I didn't get there yet. But he says, um, if the government were not paid their taxes. And if they had to make a choice between continuing, let's say, the slavery and, and continuing the war, um, but but back in their own country, they have all this problem, everyone's not paying their taxes, Thoreau maintained that the government would just give up the war. Maybe they'd give up the war, first of all, as opposed to the slavery. But um, yeah, because that's a major problem. If, if everyone internally was going against the government, you know, if everyone was was disobeying in a civil way, um, yeah, so I'll get back to the essay. Um, so, um, I should like to, oh yeah, so here he is. These people, they say they're, they, they're not supporting the war or at least they wouldn't go and fight for it. And yet they are supporting it indirectly by paying their taxes. The soldier is applauded who refuses to serve in an unjust war by those who do not refuse to sustain the unjust government. So that's like one soldier somewhere is like saying, fuck this, this is all wrong. I conscientiously object to this. And then it's like all the other soldiers clap or clap. But yet they're just applauding his courage or her courage for doing what they don't have the courage to do, which is to say, fuck this, I'm not participating in this. So they're clapping, but really they're saying like, I'm not able to do what you do. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, 
Um, yeah, I'll continue, get back to it. Um, is applauded by those whose own act and authority is disregarded and sets at naught, as if the state were penitent to that degree that it hired one to scourge it while it sinned, but not to that degree that it left off sinning for, for a moment. Thus, under the name of order and civil government, we are all made at last to pay homage to and support our own meanness. Thus, under the name of order and civil government, we are all made at last to pay homage and support our own meanness. You know, if you're being a good citizen and paying your taxes, you're being a you're getting praise from essentially people who have majorly overlooked and disregarded the moral implications of what they're doing. What fucking praise is that? It's mob rule. It's fucking mob rule. It's mob rule. You know, those in power tend to be people who are power hungry. And power hungry people tend to not have the highest morals. You know, I mean, if you don't know this, like... um, Yeah. Thus, oh yeah, sorry, I read that already. After the first blush of sin, this is a great line. I might quote this somewhere, put, put this on my Instagram or something. After the first blush of sin, you know, if your government did something that is horrendous, like the American government condoning and funding the Israeli genocide of, 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 Gaza's, of Gaza. After the first blush of sin and the first like oh god isn't it terrible after that comes indifference then you start to think you just forget about it and from immoral the immoral act in the first place and from immoral it becomes as it were unmoral meaning you're just not even thinking about it anymore and not quite unnecessary to that life which we have made then you kind of think oh well it's a necessary Maybe it's necessary for the whole system that we are a part of. I'll just say that now without me speaking over it. After the first blush of sin comes its indifference and from immoral it becomes, as it were, unmoral and not quite unnecessary to that life which we have made. The broadest and most prevalent error requires the most disinterested virtue to sustain it. That's another good one. The broadest and most Prevalent error requires the most disinterested virtue to sustain it. So like the broadest and most widespread atrocity acquires the most like um, the most uninterest in it to sustain it. Everyone turning a blind eye is what is necessary to sustain. But if everyone looks at what's going on in Gaza and Everyone is, I mean, the world is now screaming for for a ceasefire. Uh, like, you know, so many humanitarian organizations in the world are pleading with Israel to ceasefire. And, and they're just like, no, no. Um, but if there is enough public outrage in every country... 
And that message finally gets through the deaf ears of those in government. And that the, and the voice of the people is finally heard by the people who supposedly represent the people of each country. If that then pressure from the people goes up to the government of, the, of each country, then the government of each country has to condemn what's going on in in Gaza by the Israelis. And then public opinion would force Israel to stop what they're doing because it's blatantly Nakba 2.0 at this stage. I mean, they've even said it in the in the Israeli parliament. They've even called for it. There's one guy, you can quote him as saying it. This is going to be a Nakba um, much bigger than the than the first Nakba. It's this, it's like it's just unbelievable um, that it's so obvious what's going on, and yet, like you know, Israel are only daring to do this because they know that they have the support of America. And I mean, here is where it gets like, what? why is America um, unconditionally going to support Israel? This is the crux. This is it. Why are they going to? Well, I mean, I have a view on it that this whole situation is essentially the globalists of the world, like the World Economic Forum. They are the main, most obvious expression and, uh, yeah, uh, organization of the global the globalist agenda, which is for a one-world government. Um, that could be... Well, I haven't really prepared this um, this um, this kind of a, a, a rant here now, but I mean, okay, why does America support Israel unconditionally? That's the problem. This unconditional support. You know what? I'll I'll present my I'll gather my thoughts better, and I'll present them in a better way because. Um, it might just take a bit too long. I could probably go on a whole tangent here for a long time. But the, the problem is what, whatever America's reasons are for supporting Israel, it's the unconditional support that is the problem. Because whatever the reasons are, whether they're well-intentioned or not, it's disgraceful if you're supporting a country that is genociding another country. And all the world can see that. You have no reason further to support that country morally. You know what I mean? You have no ground to stand on. The whole world can see that you're supporting this country that's genociding this other one. You, Whatever your reasons were are now irrelevant. You know what I mean? Um... Yeah, so I'll just get back to it. 
Um, there's only a few pages here left now, and then let me just have a quick look at the time. Probably, whoops, what is it? Yeah, yeah, it's like yesterday. Um, so where was I? Um, those who, while they disapprove of the character and measures of a government, yield to it their allegiance and support, and undoubtedly its most conscientious are undoubtedly its most conscientious supporters and so frequently the most serious obstacles to reform. Some are petitioning the state to dissolve the union, to disregard the requirements, the requisition of the president. Why do they not dissolve it themselves? The union between themselves and the state and refuse to pay their quota into its treasury. Do not they stand in the same relation to the state that the state does to the union and have not the same reasons prevented the state from resisting the union, which have prevented them from resisting the state? So it's like the relationship between an individual and the government is like the same as the relationship between the states and the union in America. How can a man be satisfied to entertain an opinion merely and enjoy it. Is there any enjoyment in it if his opinion is that he is aggrieved? If you are cheated out of a single dollar by your neighbor, you do not rest satisfied with knowing that you are cheated or with saying that you are cheated or even with petitioning him to pay you your due, but you take effectual steps at once to obtain the full amount and to see that you are never cheated again. Action from principle. The perception and the performance of right changes things and relations. It is essentially revolutionary and does not consist wholly with anything which was. It not only divides states and churches, it divides families. Aye, it divides the individual, separating the diabolical in him from the divine. Mm. Unjust laws, shall we be content to obey them? Or shall we endeavor to amend them, absolutely, and obey them until we have succeeded? Or shall we transgress them at once? Yeah, that's really good as well. Unjust laws, like let's say slavery or the policy to expand into um, the Mexican territory. <clears throat> shall we be content to obey them? Or shall we endeavor to amend them? Of course. And obey them until we have succeeded? Or shall we transgress them at once? Yeah, that's what's necessary. Men generally, under such a government as this, think that they ought to wait until they have persuaded the majority to alter them. But it can come from the ground up, like all the protests for Gaza, should eventually bloody be heard by the people in governments who are just you know they think that if they should resist the remedy would be worse than the evil but it is the fault of the government it's itself that the remedy is worse than the evil it makes it worse why is it not more apt to anticipate and provide for reform why does it not cherish its most its wise minority meaning why does the government not want to hear criticisms from the people of how the government can improve itself why does it not make 
that more easy to happen because generally those in power don't want to change the status quo because the status quo benefits them. Why does it not cherish its wise minority who are telling them how to make things better? Why does it cry and resist before it is hurt? Why does it not encourage its citizens to be on the alert to point out its faults and do better than it would than it than it is currently doing? Why does it always crucify Christ and excommunicate Copernicus and Luther? and pronounce Washington and Franklin rebels because the status quo sucks, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one, one would think that a deliberate and practical denial of its authority was the only offense never contemplated by government. Else, why has it not assigned its definite, its suitable and proportionate uh, penalty? If a man who is no property... If a man who has no property refuses but once to earn nine shillings for the state, he is put in prison. If a man who has no property refuses to earn nine shillings for the state, he is put in prison for a period of unlimited by any unlimited time by any law and determined only by the discretion of those who placed him there. But if he should steal 90 times 9 shillings from the state. He is soon permitted to go again at large. I'm not really sure about that. Is I don't really get that. Is, it, is he saying there's like one law for the rich, one law for the poor? Um, if the injustice is part of the necessary friction of the machine of government, then I say let it go. Let it go. Perchance it will wear smooth. Certainly the machine will wear will wear out. If the injustice has a spring or a pulley or a rope or a crank exclusively for itself, then perhaps you may consider whether the rem remedy will not be worse than the evil. But if it is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say break the law. Like there's a law of, of government and then there's a law of conscience, let's say. And if the law of government is forcing you to go against your own conscience of what you can see or feel or know um, what you see to be true or feel to be true or know to be true or right, morally right, then you have to break that law. I mean, it has to be broken. I mean, yeah, it, just slavery in America is the... is you know, a very good example of a law that was absolutely immoral and it absolutely had to be broken and challenged. Um, let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine. Let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine. What have I to do? What have I to do is to see at any rate, what I have to do is to see at any rate that I do not lend myself to the wrong which I condemn. You see, you can't support it in any way is what he's saying. And this is the thing, he didn't pay his taxes and he went to prison for a day. Um, once again, I mean, there's probably other ways of um, civilly disobeying, you know, you're disobeying in a non-violent, civilized way. Um, 
yeah, if, if I mean, I don't know how many people, what percentage of America can see what's going on and feel that, yes, this is wrong, what's going on here now in Gaza. Um, imagine if all those people just saying, hypothetically, what would happen if all those people didn't pay their taxes, there would be a major deficit in the American economy. And yeah, the government would have to think twice about what they're doing because the people have um, acted in accordance to their consciences. Um, where was I? That I do not lend myself to the wrong which I condemn. As for adopting the ways which the state has provided for remedying the evil, I know not of such ways. The state doesn't really doesn't really want to hear about how it can improve itself, apparently. They take too much time, and a man's life will be gone. I have other affairs to attend to. I came into this world not chiefly to make this a good place to live in, but to live in it, be it good or bad. A man has not everything to do, but something. And because he cannot do everything, it is not necessary that he should do something wrong. It is not my business to be petitioning the governor or the legislator any more than it is theirs to petition me. And if they should not hear my petition, what should I do then? But in this case, the state has provided no way. Its very constitution is evil. This may seem to be harsh and stubborn and unconciliatory, but it is to treat with the utmost kindness and consideration the only spirit that can appreciate or deserves it. So is a change for the better, like birth and death, which convulse the body. I do not hesitate to say that those who call themselves abolitionists should at once effectually withdraw their support, both in person and property, from the government of Massachusetts. He's, he's saying he does not hesitate to, to, to call, to, to suggest this. I do not hesitate to to say that those who call themselves abolitionists should at once effectually withdraw their support both in person and property from the government of Massachusetts and not wait till they constitute a majority of, of one before they suffer the right to prevail through them. I think that it, it is enough if they have God on their side or their correct moral standing and conscience in relation to the thing. Um without waiting for that other group of people you know the right is if you have if you're on the side of right um you already as he says here moreover any man more right than his neighbors constitutes a majority of one already i meet this american government or its representative the state government directly and face to face once a year no more in the person of its tax gatherer this is the only mode in which a man situated as I am necessarily meets it and, and it then says distinctly to me, recognize me. <laughs> this is the state representative. Um, and the simplest, the most effectual and in the present posture of affairs, the most indispensable mode of, of uh, treating with it on this head of expressing your little satisfaction with and love for it 
is to deny it then. My civil neighbor, the tax gatherer, is the very man I have to deal with, for it is, after all, with men and not with parchment that I quarrel, and he has voluntarily chosen to be an agent of the government. How shall he ever know how shall he ever know well what he is and does as an officer of the of the government or as a man until he is obliged to consider whether he shall treat me his neighbor for whom he has respect as a, as a neighbor and well disposed man or as a maniac and disturber of the peace and see if he can get over this obstruction to his neighborliness without a rudder and more impetuous thought or speech corresponding with his action. I know this well, that if one thousand, if one hundred, if ten men whom I could name, if ten honest men only, actually, if one honest man in this state of Massachusetts, ceasing to ceasing to hold slaves, were actually to withdraw from this co-partnership and be locked up in the county jail, therefore, it would be the abolition of slavery in America. Because he's saying, if one person did it, it would catch on. It would have a domino effect. For it matters not how small the beginning may seem to be. What is once well done is done forever. But we love better to talk about it than we, that we say is our mission. Oh, we need to talk about this, but we need to do something about it. Reform keeps many scores of newspapers in its service, but not one man. If man esteemed, if my esteemed neighbor, the state's ambassador, who will devote his days to the settlement of the question of human rights in the civil chamber, instead of being threatened with the prisons of uh, Carolina, were to sit down the prisoner of Massachusetts, that state which is so anxious to foist the sin of slavery upon her, though at present, sorry, I'll read that again, that state which is so anxious to foist, I mean like throw, throw upon, the sin of slavery upon her, though at present she can discover only an act of inhospi inhospitality to the to be the ground of a quarrel with her the legislator would not wholly waive the subject the following winter i'm nearly there now under a government that imprisons any unjustly the true place for a just man is also a prison under a government that imprisons any unjustly the true place for a just man is also a prison. Yeah, if the whole rules of the society are actually immoral, anyone who is moral is literally a criminal and is put in prison. That's pretty messed up. The proper place today, the only place which Massachusetts has provided for her freer and less desponding self-reliant spirits is in her prisons, to be put out and locked out of the state by her own act, and they have already put themselves out by their principles. It is there that the fugitive slave and the Mexican prisoner on parole and the Indian come to plead the wrongs of his race should find them on that separate but more free and honourable ground where the state places those who are not with her but against her. The only house in a slave state in which a free the only house in a slave state in which a free man 
can abide with honor is a prison. If any think that their influence would be lost if they were in prison and their voices no longer afflict the ear of the state, that they would not be an enemy, uh, sorry, that they would not be as an enemy within its walls, they do not know by how much truth is stronger than error nor how much more eloquently and effectively he can combat injustice who has experienced a little in his own person. This is like what uh, Emerson, or sorry, this is like what Thoreau, he got, he, he expressed his disagreement and he got into direct confront confrontation with the government. And so he got his own experience of it as well. And that inspired him to write this whole thing. So, having direct experience with it will pff, oh, yeah it will ex accelerate your thinking on the matter rather than it being something far away from you that you know once you're actually in it things yeah a lot more serious consideration uh, comes about maybe cast your whole vote not a strip of paper merely but your whole influence like he's saying, put your life into it. A minority is powerless while it conforms to the majority. Mm -hmm. That little majority has got to be brave and go against it. But it is irresistible when it clogs by its whole weight. That little majority, it becomes irresistible when it actually acts and clogs up the machine by its whole weight. Um, if the alternative is to keep all just men in prison, which is impossible if enough people revolted or didn't pay their taxes or whatever, like I was just saying a while ago, okay, yeah, not paying your taxes is one way. Um, but I wonder what other ways. I mean, there is people boycotting, people boycotting certain Israeli-owned um, companies around the world. And I saw on instagram people showing statistics that it's actually having an effect they're actually getting less profits so that is another way i just wonder um yeah what other ways um non-violent peaceful protests if the alternative is to keep all men all just men in prison or give up war here oh yeah if the alternative is to keep to imprison all these conscientious objectors, which you almost couldn't do, probably wouldn't be enough prison space to do it, so they they would they couldn't do it. So you either got to do that or give up war and slavery. The state will not hesitate to uh, which to choose. He thinks they would give up war and slavery if a thousand men were not to pay their tax bills this year. Here he is getting straight to it. That would not be. Oh, this is a great quote as well. If a thousand men were not to pay their tax bills this year, in 2023, although a thousand isn't a big number, maybe it was for that day, but um, that would not be as violent and bloody a measure as it would be to pay them and enable the state to commit violence and bloodshed, the shed, shedding of innocent blood. So just not paying your taxes is not violent at all. But if you do pay your taxes, that is supporting violent action. This is, in fact, the definition of a peaceable revolution. There you are. 
if any such is possible, if the tax gatherer or any other public officer asks me, as one has done, but what shall I do? If the tax collector, when uh, Thoreau said to him, I'm not going to pay because I disagree fundamentally with what this, gov this government is going to do with my money. Then the guy might have, sa have said, but what shall I do? Now he's in a moral dilemma. He's in, he's in a situation where he has to choose to go to agree with Thoreau's moral stance on the situation and not pay his taxes or to be completely spineless and say, oh, but the machine, the machine um, tells me that I have to put you in prison now because you're not going to um, pay your taxes and the machine needs your money. But I fundamentally disagree with what the machine is going to do with my money. But the machine doesn't care about your fundamental disagreement. It just wants your money. And if you're not going to support our immoral actions, then we are going to put you in prison because we are criminals <laughs> or something like that. Um, if the tax gatherer or any other public officer asks me, as one has done, but what shall I do? My answer is, Thoreau says, if you really wish to do anything, resign your office when the subject has refused allegiance and the officer has resigned his office, then the revolution is accomplished. In a way, yeah, that's like he was saying if the if the slaver, if the slave owner just said, you know what, fuck this, I'm, I disagree with this. I'm giving I'm giving all my slaves their freedom and um, and then and then that might catch on as a domino effect. Um He's, he's, he's assuming here the same might happen with the officer. If he resigned, people would hear about it and say, yeah, he's right. You know, yeah, fuck this. Then there might be a period of, yeah, a bit of a kind of revolution. But then if there was enough of a community within in the revolution, they can support each other rather than needing support from the government or something, you know. Um, there's a great quote from Martin Luther King. It's something like, I saw it the other day. I'm trying to get it from memory here now. It's like, Those who want peace have to organize as well for peace as those who organize for war. Exactly. Um, but even suppose blood should flow. Is there not a sort of bloodshed when the conscience is wounded? Through this wound, a man's real manhood and immortality flows out and he bleeds to an everlasting death. I see this blood flowing now. He's talking about different types of violence. Like if a man is, a woman is, is forced to act not in agreement or, or in accordance with their conscience, that's a type of violence on themselves. They're inflicting pain on themselves for not doing what they know or believe is right That's a nice sentence as well. But even suppose blood should flow. Is there not a sort of bloodshed when the conscience is wounded? There definitely is. It's, yeah, psychologically. I have contemplated the imprisonment of the offender rather than the seizure of his goods, though both will serve the same purpose, because they who assert the purest right and consequently are most dangerous to a corrupt state, commonly have not spent much time in accumulating property. 
just say that again. I have contemplated the imprisonment of the offender rather than the seizure of his goods, though both will serve the same purpose. Because they who assert the purest right and consequently are most dangerous to a corrupt state commonly have not spent much time in accumulating property. To such the state renders comparatively small service and a slight tax is wont to appear exorbitant, particularly if they are obliged to ear it by special labour with their hands, to earn it by special labour with their hands. If there were one who lived wholly without the use of money, the state itself would he would hesitate to demand it of him. But the rich man, not to make any invidious comparison, is always sold to the institution which makes him rich. Absolutely speaking, the more money, the less virtue. For money comes between a man and his objects and obtains them for him. And it was certainly no great virtue to obtain it. It puts to rest many questions which he would otherwise be taxed to answer, while the only new question which it puts is the hard but superfluous one, how to spend that money. Thus, his moral ground is taken from under his feet. So now I'm on to page 17, so I'll, that's half the essay, over more than half of the essay. So, yeah, let me see how much time is done here now. Mm, where's it gone? Oh yeah, just exactly like yesterday. That's funny. Um, yeah, so I, as you can see, the whole essay you can interpret it to be all about the situation right now and how people should. Yeah, if the government is supporting what's going on there, then how can we be we be supporting that government because at this stage it's blatant genocide what's going on there now it's blatantly nakba 2.0 um yeah so um yeah so i'll probably read out the next half of this essay probably tomorrow um, but yeah, it's, I think it's totally relevant. Um, this essay, as I said, major influence on Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So, um, it's a good essay to consult in a time where governments are not doing enough, it seems, to condemn what Israel is doing right now. So, yeah, how to get that message to those people who have the power to influence, that is the, that is the, that is the issue right now. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Um, hope that was um, interesting. Uh, and yeah, talk to you in the next one. Ciao, ciao.